Bibi Fahodie, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. So, Bibi Fahodie, today's date is March 1st, 2020 or 6260. This is indeed the African Liberation Media, a show put together by a group of conscious Africans dedicated to the liberation and empowerment of African people throughout the diaspora. We have tried to challenge the dominant ideology, the prevailing notion, and the conventional wisdom. Suffice it to say, there is news and there is truth. Join us on Facebook via the African Liberation Media. Question that Dr. King asked, where do we go from here when the seas rise, this existential threat, the choice we have is very real. What do we do when Africans are forced to flee inland? We have the history and the response of the Europeans during the Hurricane Katrina catastrophe and the slaughter of African people near the Edward Danziger Bridge in New Orleans. What do we do when there are shortages of food emanating from climate change producing drought all over the world? What are we prepared for? What are we doing from a proactive standpoint versus responding in our typical modality, reactionarily, oftentimes being overwhelmed by events and circumstances. This is the African Liberation Media. This is my introduction. Everybody wants to be filled with happy thoughts. But if we are to change our condition, we have to come to grips with reality. Brothers, almost brother Macaroo, take it wherever you want to take it. Bibi Fahodie, African family, Baba Macaroo here. Once again, an opportunity to engage in discourse with the global African community on issues that you will not hear discussed with this level of detail and from this perspective anywhere else. Yeah, a couple of uh, interesting things that that took place during the week that I saw. Um, One was, uh, first was this announcement by Bill Gates that Africa was totally unprepared if, if, if there was an outbreak of the coronavirus on the continent. And I believe he said that Africa could lose up to 100 million people as a result of that. Now, so far, there have, there have not been that many cases identified in Africa, but what I found interesting was that there was a case that, uh, that they have identified now in Nigeria, and it is the first case of, uh, of the virus that uh, has so far been identified by uh you know, in in West Africa, um, they said that um, the uh, Ministry of Health in Lagos State has confirmed the first case of the coronavirus. Incidentally, the first in Nigeria and in West Africa since the outbreak in China. Like the confirmed case in Algeria, the victim, an Italian traveler, arrived in Nigeria on Tuesday from Milan on a business trip. Uh, in a statement the government read the case this is a case of an Italian citizen who entered Nigeria on the 25th of February from Italy for a brief business uh, visit he fell ill on the 26th and was transferred to Lagos uh, biosecurity facilities for isolation and testing so I I think that raises some questions um regarding you know how this uh, this virus has 
has traveled around the world and how is how is being uh, transmitted. And it seems that uh, they're saying that the two cases now, I think there was also a case identified in Egypt, I believe. But they're saying that um, both of the cases, the one in Algeria and the one in in, in Nigeria, both came from uh, Italians. And we know that Italy, Italy has been hit, uh, you know, relatively hard. So to the extent that, you know, African people are allowing people into the country from these countries where, you know, there are, they are known out there, you know, there's a known outbreak. It appears that if there is an outbreak in Africa, it will come from, from allowing all of these people in. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, that's just a thought. Uh, there was also, uh, I found very interesting and, you know, I don't want to delve off into uh, deep state conspiracy theory, <laughs> but in the, there was an article published in the New Yorker that said how Iran became an epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak. And the interesting thing, the interesting thing about that is that uh, is that the the high level of the, the vice president of Iran came down with the virus along with a, a former ambassador who was 80 plus years old he he uh, succumbed to the virus a mayor of one of the cities and several people in the state legislature i'm just going to read one thing that uh that the author wrote iran a country of 83 million people has now become the global epicenter of the coronavirus with the highest mortality rate in the world of course now understand this is coming from the corporate media Based on official numbers, the mortality rate in Iran has fluctuated daily between 8 and 18% compared to 3% in China and less everywhere else. Iran is also unique because a disproportionate number of confirmed cases are senior government officials. On Thursday, the vice president, uh, Ektabar, uh, she, this is a, this is a woman by the, by the way, uh, announced that she, too, had contracted the virus the day before she attended a meeting with uh, President Rouhani and his cabinet. So she was sitting in a meeting with the, with the president of the country the day before she announced that she had the virus. Um, let's see. Two members of parliament, including the chairman of the Committee on National Security and Foreign Policy, have also been affected as as well as the mayor of a district in Tehran and a senior cleric who has served as Iran's ambassador to the Vatican. Uh, the former Vatican ambassador, who was 81, died on Thursday, and so did a 22-year-old member of the women's national soccer team. Now, this is supposed to be, this disease is not supposed to be uh, fatal uh, uh, among young people, it prim it's primarily a, a disease, as they describe it so far, like the flu, which uh, in terms of mortality, the flu will, will take out people who, who are elderly or people who have compromised immune systems. But you, do, but you just have to wonder how is it that, I mean, um, imagine the shock waves that would, that would flow across the United States if Mike Pence announced that he was infected. This is the vice president of the country that's infected. So that does wonder, I mean, is there a biological warfare component to this? So, you know, these are a couple of things that uh, we, we particularly, I think, need to, need to stay on top of. Uh, but we have to view it from the perspective, obviously, of the liberation and empowerment of African people. Yeah. Everything that I've read, and I did see that report uh, that Bill Gates put out, I believe he said it, w it would kill up to 10 million people. 10 million, okay. In Africa, but everything that I've read from doctors and specialists have stated that the climate in Africa makes it hard for coronavirus to spread, makes it hard for the pathogen to spread because of the heat and the humidity. Oh, really? Oh, okay. So that's probably one of the reasons why Africa is one of the only continents where you don't see that many cases, as you stated. 
the majority of people who were all, all three cases that there have been reported have been foreigners, either foreigners who have come into the country or someone who's contracted it and then come into the country. Okay. I mean, uh, the particular country, Algeria, Nigeria, or in uh, Egypt, I believe it's the other, in Cairo. So really what Bill Gates is doing is he's setting up the cover for another potential method that they may try to use to kill people on the continent. Hmm. We know Bill Gates has a history with this foundation in doing vaccinations around the world. And he stated at a TED talk that if vaccinations are done, new vaccinations are done properly, that the world's population could be reduced by 10 to 15%. So his agenda is to reduce population. So, so they're gonna give people a vaccine that's gonna cause them to become infertile. That's more than likely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and two years ago, uh, Bill Gates stated that he predicted that there would be a epidemic pathogen or a disease that would kill up to 30 million people. And now we have this coronavirus. So when you start to really connect the dots with his statements, and now he's speaking on Africa, the next move for them will probably be the World Health Organization is probably going to develop some type of vaccination. And then they'll probably try to take that vaccination to Africa and say, we could prevent you from getting coronavirus if you take this vaccine. Now, what's going to be in that vaccine is probably going to be something that will achieve the 10 million deaths that he predicted. And 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 do we have do we have African leaders who will stand up to this, who will say no 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 we you know we're not going we we aren't going for it you know you you you're not you're not bringing some vaccine over here and using us uh, as guinea pigs I mean the, the gate the Gates Foundation has been at the forefront of criticizing the the proper the growth of uh, people, the population growth on the African continent. You know, we published this this video that they put out called Overpopulation, and it's primarily focused on on the African continent. You know, and one thing uh, Dr. Amos Wilson always said is that, you know, the the point is that there's not too many people in the world, is that there's too many greedy people. When When you look at the carbon footprint of people in the United States, it far exceeds the carbon footprint of anyone of any any other uh, country, any other group of people. So, but 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 to your point, that could be a way of achieving this because he has been harping on this. Uh, he got uh, Emmanuel uh, Macron on board with him uh, to be to to talk about the fact that you know Africa needs uh, Africans need birth control. They need to uh, control the massive population because if. If Africa's population continues to to uh, grow, it's gonna have a devastating impact on Europe. So, and to your other point about the coronavirus affecting older people or people with compromised immune systems, Africa has uh, the largest population of youth out of any continent um, on the planet. So, yeah, the majority of the people in Africa are under age twenty-five, overwhelmingly. So coronavirus, I don't know how he would predict that coronavirus doesn't make sense that you predict that coronavirus would kill 10 million people in a place where it can't really spread because of the climate like it can in the U.S., Europe, or China. And the people are far younger than the people in China or the people in in America. So those two factors will pretty much nullify the ability for the actual coronavirus to kill all those people. So he's just covering for something else that they can use to accomplish that mission and I, then blame it on coronavirus. I, I'm reminded of a statement made by Dr. Henry Kissinger maybe 30 years ago, perhaps longer. Uh, I'm quoting, the depopulation of the world should be of the highest priority for the U.S. State Department. You know, of course, we have the history of the uh, Tuskegee. Yeah, that was the uh, National Security Memorandum uh, 
200. Yeah, that document course, that they put out. Go, go ahead, brother. And of course, we have the history of the Tuskegee experiment and uh, General Amherst, et cetera, et cetera, using various viruses. Um, you know, just the experimentation of mixing bovine viruses, which they accidentally or purposely unleash upon the world's population. Uh, listen to a guy yesterday, I just um, I think his name, I cannot think of his name, he's a comedian. He brought up a very interesting point that uh, people work in restaurants, for instance, can't take days off. If they contract this disease, um, well then they have to work because they can't, they don't have, we don't have, they don't have built in sick paid leave uh, with many of these companies. Uh, they can't afford medical treatment. You know, so uh, needless to say, this is how this virus can be contracted and spread to the point where it reaches uh, epidemic levels. We're talking about Jimmy Dore. Uh, uh, the conclusion of what he was saying was that uh, this exposes also the weakness of our system in terms of you know, the provisions or the lack of provisions that are provided for uh, workers. Wow. Wow. That's, uh, you know, that's uh, that's really interesting because I wouldn't take <laughs> that gum coronavirus shot, man. <laughs> you, you, you know, you'd have to. You know, you'd have to have me tied up and with under with no capability to move at all. Uh, there was a there was a mass shooting this week in uh, Milwaukee, uh, carried out uh, by a black man, and uh, this brother uh, had, was a an electrician working uh, working at a company, and. They published uh, a lot of people began raising questions as, as to why somebody with, you know, a stable, good paying job, you know, what, you know, what would lead him to uh, walk in and, and kill uh, five people. Uh, it appeared to be uh, four white men and one Hispanic uh, that he killed. And so the question was raised, was was Miller Coors gunman Anthony Farrell a victim of work racial Harassment, how a 20 year long employee may have been motivated by ongoing race baiting. And uh, so several people have said that, uh, uh, for example, News One said, while there is no uh, official indication of the motive behind the shooting, a website called the Hispanic News Network reported without confirmation that racist taunting by employees targeted an African-American employee who might might have led him to uh, fatally shoot, you know, five, uh, five of his co-workers. A Twitter account credited to the name of Tony Muhammad. And see, here's the thing with social media. You don't know if people, these people are real people or they're robots or what. Said Miller, uh, that Miller Bruin in Milwaukee has a long and present day history of employment of employment on the job discrimination against African-American males. So, you know, we wonder if, if this was, if this was a case of black rage where they pushed this guy over the limit and, and he responded. So that's uh we'll have to, it'll be interesting to see how they, how they continue to play out, play this out because generally they will not, they will not really propagandize or, or, or publicize anything that they could attribute to black rage simply because that's not an idea that they want out there. You know, we know the book was published back, uh, I think it was in the 1960s by uh, Greer and Cobbs. And, you know, they predicted that uh, in, in, in the climate of the 1960s, we, we understand why they made made this prediction is that that people simply weren't going weren't going to take it uh you know we remember what happened with uh colin ferguson on the uh, long island railroad uh so you know that uh you know clearly a case of uh you know he didn't use the black rage defense you know when he defended himself but you know that's something that uh that uh you know you push people so far and 
you get a reaction. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's been expressed by so many uh, living under white supremacy. Uh, Langston Hughes, he articulated, we wear the mask of grinning and lies. Uh, I think that was Dunbar. Dunbar, I'm sorry. But then the other one, what happens to a dream deferred? That was Hughes. That was Hughes. Does it drop like a heavy load or does it explode? You know, rising expectations and worsening conditions ultimately leads to an explosion. An, op an open-ended question that's never asked. Uh, Francis Welsing, uh, the late Jegna, queen mother, you know, just talks about the vast majority of patients she dealt with you know, uh, living under extreme conditions on the work face, on the workplace, at the, in the workforce, being demeaned and harassed on jobs that they have to have. You know, just a confluence of a lot of different variables on the workplace because we know the insult is coming. You know, living under white supremacy is to be insulted daily. But then the thing we have to be guarded of is our tendency, the natural tendency, to displace our anger uh, toward the African, uh, our African families, African children, wives, brothers, and sisters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to talk about a report that I saw uh, come out recently in relation to terrorism in Kenya. So the U.S. has released... The Federal Aviation Administration has released uh, an alert. Uh, they released it Wednesday, warning uh, civilian airliners and all operators of U.S. registered aircraft to exercise caution when flying over Kenyan airspace, citing possible attacks by extremists. So they're saying that uh, these people may be armed with small arms, including rockets, uh, mortars, and anti-aircraft capable weapons. Uh, including man-portable air defense systems. Such weapons could target aircraft at low altitudes, including during the arrival and departure phases of flight and or target airports and aircraft on the ground, especially at airfields located east of 40 degrees east longitude. So this is not just military air, airplanes. It's also talking about commercial airlines. Um, number one, how would they know that these airlines or these airplanes are potential targets? And then number two, the so-called terrorism that they say is capable or is existing in this area, who is funding and who is backing and providing these quote-unquote terrorists with the weapons that are capable of being able to take down commercial airlines, commercial airplanes? Well, uh, let, let's look at it this way. Uh, they, they, they gave you a geographical location. Did, did you happen to look, look that up to see exactly where that was? What, here's, what's, here's, here's what's going on. And uh, this goes back to the uh, December uh, 2006 invasion of Somalia uh, by the Bush administration. It was primarily orchestrated by... Uh, Condoleezza Rice, and one of her uh, assistants, uh, Jendai Frazier, they, they wanted to stop a movement in Somalia that was called uh, the Union of Is Islamic Courts or the Islamic Courts Union. Uh, coming out of the uh, chaos of uh, Black Hawk Down, uh, the... Uh, over the overthrow and neutralization of uh, Muhammad Adid and uh, and his clans, uh, a group rose up and began to bring a, a degree of stability to uh, to Somalia, at least to the Mogadishu area. And people who have been uh, in Somalia, in such a chaotic state uh, for years, well, you know, for a long period of time. Somalia was was actually very stable, but it got caught up in a Cold War conflict between the Soviet Union and uh, and and the and the United States, and um, 
but uh, Somalia under uh, Saeed Bari was 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 relatively stable. So Bush and Rice decided that this organization, the Union of Islamic Courts, had to be overthrown because they said that they were a terrorist organization and that they were trying to impose Sharia law on uh, on Somalia. But the people in Somalia that were living in the areas that uh, that they had uh, seized control of were very pleased with the fact that they had some stability. There was not there was not the, the chaos that had been taking place in the country for over 20 years was, you know, seemingly uh, being brought under control. So Rice uh, and Bush convinced Ethiopia to launch an invasion of Somalia. That was in December of 2006, and they were supported by the United States uh, military with uh, uh, the uh, AC-300 gunships, and they routed the Union uh, of, of Islamic uh, Courts, or the Islamic Courts Union. They routed them, drove them, uh, drove them from power. So when 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 you have a void of power, you, you you have a vacuum, and somebody's going to fill it. And the group that rose up to fill the void was actually a real jihadist-oriented group, uh, the Al Shabaab organization. And they began fighting against the Ethiopians and uh, the Somalis that were aligned with Ethiopia. And since 2006, the country has been in total chaos now whereas the islamic courts union was like more independent the al-shabaab organization declared their allegiance to the al-qaeda organization so you removed a more moderate organization this is once again how europeans just come in and create chaos in africa you remove a moderate organization and then you replace it with an organization that's really jihadist Realizing that the Somali uh, uh, assault was going to fail, and, and uh, I mean the uh, Ethiopian assault on Somalia was going to fail, and the Ethiopians eventually did decide to pull out because, you know, it was a zero-sum game for them. The uh, United States convinced the uh, certain some African countries uh, to form this quote-unquote UN peacekeeping mission. But it really wasn't it really is not so much a U.N. peacekeeping mission as it is a mission to prop up the uh, puppet government that rose in place of the Islamic courts. Kenya is one of the countries that provides troops to that U.N. mission in Somalia. And so what Al-Shabaab has done periodically is take the war out of Somalia into Kenya. And we remember Several years ago, the attack on the uh, mall in Nairobi. Uh, this was an upscale mall, uh, obviously uh, not one that the average African citizen in Nairobi would even be venturing in. A lot of uh, foreigners and uh, bourgeois Africans were, were in the mall. But there, there have been ongoing attacks by, uh, by the Al-Shabaab organization into Kenya. But the reason why they're doing that is because Kenya is involved in this peacekeeping mission that they say is preventing them from taking power. The United States has been engaged since 2006 in a war against Al-Shabaab, a low-intensity war. They are literally bombing uh, this organization on a weekly basis. Uh, Obama picked up from, uh, from Bush and continued the war but Trump has escalated it. He has, he has thoroughly escalated the war, and they carried out more strikes in, um, in Somalia in the last two years than they did in the previous uh, 10 under, under Donald Trump. Now, the whole issue of man pads, man portable air defense systems, one of the, one of the things that was identified as a real problem when Muammar Gaddafi was overthrown. Libya had a large supply of man pads, a large supply of man pads, which then fell into the hands of all of the groups that were fighting for power after Gaddafi was overthrown. And one of the one of the things that 
the, the U.S. ambassador, Christopher Stevens, and the U.S. contractors, uh, the, the, the Navy SEALs who were, were killed, you know, with <coughs> Ambassador Stevens in Benghazi, one of the things they were doing, because they, knew, they said this was a serious problem, they, they were predicting then that as these man pads were spread to other organizations, that it would definitely pose a threat to uh, uh, commercial airliners, particularly European commercial airliners, which fly in Africa more than American airliners. So it's, 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 it's highly possible uh, almost in terms of answering your question that, you know, how could, how could this organization uh, come up with these man pads? It's certainly possible. It's certainly possible given the fact that both uh, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, uh, you know, were involved in the uh, hostilities and are still involved in the hostilities that have been taking place in Libya since 2011, it's highly possible that they have uh, spread these man pads to all the organizations that are aligned with them. I would not be surprised if, at all if the Boko Haram organization doesn't have these man pads. So, you know, that could be driving it. And I, I think back to Lindsey Graham's statement about the war on terror moving to Africa. Now you have, on Saturday, um, some supposed deal between Afghanistan and Taliban in the United States on a um, withdrawal or in potential <laughs> end to this 18-year war where they're pulling troops out of, I think it's going to be like a 14 to 18-month withdrawal period where they're going to pull the troops out of Afghanistan. Uh-huh. So I, I'm wondering if there's going to now be an escalation of these terrorist threats that they say exist on the African continent as a way for them to, we know they're still in Syria, we know that they're still dealing with Iran, but is there gonna be a rise in these terrorist attacks that are backed by US funding on the African continent? Yeah, I mean, I would think so. I would, I would think so. Uh, I think they, that Trump has reached the conclusion that there's really nothing to be gained uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, I would expect that as uh, American troops are pulled out, that American contractors will move in. Yeah, they only, they only stop when they get what they want. Yeah. So I mean, you know, that that that, that that's that's what I would expect. But in, but in terms but in terms of shifting the war, uh, you know the, these you know this war in Somalia is, is 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 taking place on a daily basis. I mean, Al Jazeera just reported this the other day. Uh, an American airstrike killed a worker for a telecom company in Somalia. Officials said, while the U.S. military said an Al Shabaab commander and his wife died in the attack. So uh, so this uh, brother is 55 years old local manager of the uh, Somalia's largest telecom company was killed when two missiles struck his farm mm. on the outskirts of a rebel-held town in Jalib on Monday, a Somali official say. Both the U.S. Africa Command and Somalia government said the airstrike killed a member of the Al-Qaeda-linked Al-Shabaab group, but officials at uh, Hamoud, this is the name of the telecom company, said the attack killed their local manager. So, I mean, the, the, this war is going on. This war in Somalia is going on on a weekly basis and virtually is not even being discussed. No, no one is discussed. The, it, the, the, the presidential candidates are not discussing it. The corporate media are not discussing it. So, and, they send, and they send media members there, too, because I was on a flight, Ethiopian Airlines flight, this may have been 2016. And as I'm coming through the airport, um, going through TSA, I get to the um, the boarding section and I get pulled to the back. And the person that's standing behind me also gets pulled to the back. So we go back to this back room and the person is Anderson Cooper. Really? 
yeah, he's flying on a commercial Ethiopian Airlines. Um, so I'm in the room, you know, and they're, you know, searching our bags and everything, some second level of security. Right. And uh, Well, we can see why you would be considered a threat. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the frequent traveling, but they yeah. they um, searched his stuff, you know, so I turned to him and, you know, I, I said, uh, you know, I thought you'd be on a private jet. And then he looked shocked that, you I know who he was. You recognized him. Yeah, because nobody else in the airport recognized him. Even Europeans in the airport didn't know who he was. Wow, how about that? So he said that he was coming from Somalia. Wow. So what was he doing in Somalia? What type of reporting or what type of scouting was he doing in Somalia? Yeah. yeah. But it was interesting that they would put him on a commercial airline and not put him on a chartered flight. Yeah. Yeah, with all the money CNN has. So the U.S. Africa Command said an airstrike it carried out on Saturday killed a senior Al-Shabaab leader associated with the group's deadly attack on January 5th on a military airstrip in Kenya, which killed a U.S. service member and two U.S. contractors and destroyed several American aircraft. The January 5th attack at the Amanda Bay military base in Kenya used by U.S. and Kenyan forces. Here, once again, once again, the United States military is operating out of a base in Kenya. Okay. After the attack, the U.S. military deployed additional forces to Kenya, which borders Somalia. Post-strike assessments confirmed that the two terrorists killed in the February 22nd precision airstrikes were an individual associated with the attack on Manda Bay and his wife, who was also a known Al-Shabaab member. The wife was a, a winning and active member, the group said. The man organized and directed the operations in the border region between Kenya and Somalia. So, we, you know, we remember this, uh, this uh, attack on the base in Kenya because there was, a, uh, there was a, uh, a black man in the U.S. military. I believe he was from Chicago, a young man from Chicago, who was killed in this attack. They never identified who the two contractors were. But obviously they were contractors that were that, that they were doing they were doing work there, which there are a lot of contractors. The, these are companies. Uh, there's a company that it, it was named Blackwater. It keeps changing its name. I don't know what the current name of the company is now. Uh, Z. Z or something like that. Yeah, yeah I mean something you know something crazy. Yeah. Uh, Devos's brother, I think, is in charge of it. Devos's brother is in charge yeah. of it. That's a fact. And and uh, so so. So the United so the United States is operating was operating at a base in Kenya, and Al Shabaab launched an attack on the base, <laughs> a successful attack on the base. Now we knew the United States would retaliate at some point, but uh, according to the, the people in Somalia, the attack uh, went haywire and they wound up killing an innocent person. Which I mean, that's par for the course. They do that all the time. I remember the story of a grandmother harvesting her crops in Pakistan killed by a U.S. drone strike, you know, carried out by uh, the war criminal Barack Obama. So, so I mean, this this is something that uh, that we need to to be on top of. But but at the same time, we got we have to understand that to the extent that these African countries allow the U.S. military, the French military, and all these other you know uh, the British military into their countries, then you you are opening yourself up. But but the United States wants this. They want chaos in these countries, mm -hmm. you know. So there you have it. Yeah, I just think we gotta, we have to, um, really try to connect the dots. Even when we don't have, we're still researching evidence, and not necessarily look at conspiracies. But we've seen how they've operated over the years. And we can clearly see when the focus starts to shift and they're on to the next mission. So we have to, as Africans, we have to connect the dots and remain aware and try to make our leaders aware so that we can try to fight this before it's too late. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh you know, it's ongoing, man. I saw uh, there was an incident that happened in Mali with the French military attacking some civilians. 
And, you know, for the first time, the, the Somalian government, you know, raised, I mean, the, 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 Mali, the Malian government raised some, raised some objections to the presence of the French military. Uh, you know, we see uh, the, a terrible toll is being taken on our, on our people uh, in Burkina Faso and in, uh, in, in Niger, uh, spread into uh, Cameroon uh, and Chad. And obviously with the, the situation in Northeast Nigeria with the organization known as Boko Haram, there are actually two factions of it. Uh, I know one faction is aligned with the Islamic State. I'm not sure if the other faction is. Both probably are. Uh, you know, we, 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 can, we, can see what's, we can see what's on the horizon. And the problem is, you know, where is the strong African leadership that is raising these issues and making decisions that are in the best interest of African people rather than in lining their own pockets? And one of the things that I've noticed, and I think this has been a fault of many of uh, our leaders, and it's not necessarily their fault because I can understand why they would think this way. But the reason why I say it, it's a fault is because of the the box that it puts us in in trying to say that, you know, we deserve human rights or we're human beings. Every time that you put yourself in a category as a human, then you essentially are saying that right now Europeans look at us as less than human and we're trying to get to a level where they'll view us as a human. When in all reality, we're the first people, we're Africans. So anything that comes after the African is less than the African. <laughs> so instead of us, you know, saying human this, human that, human being, and I see this a lot from people who don't want to deal with race. Not necessarily from a historical context, because I know Brother Malcolm used to talk a lot about human rights, mm -hmm. respect us as human beings. Mm -hmm. But he knew how to also deal with race. A lot of people are afraid to deal with race, so the first argument they don't say is that there's only the human race. That's not true. Mm -hmm. Human is a species. Race is a sociocultural uh, aspect of a people. Mm -hmm. There are things about people that are different. Mm -hmm. That's why you have different races of people. So we're not all the same people. Mm -hmm. We may be a part of the same species. Yeah, you can go and sleep with a European woman and you know, you can make a baby with a European, but you're still not the same race of people. And we have to really be careful of trying to put ourselves in this human box and forgetting that we were the first people, race of people on the planet. We have to start thinking on, on a higher plane not just trying to catch up with the European. It's always as if we want to be, you know, the first black this or the first black that. Instead of saying, you know, we're African people, we're not setting our standard at the European level. We're not reducing ourselves to just a human being. To me, that's reducing yourself to the, the European, the Asian, the Arab, uh, all these other races of people that were really mutations from the African. Very in, in, in different climates, different parts of the world. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the things that El Haj Malik El Shabazz, and we know this brother had in mind was that to use the nomenclature human to uh, solicit, you know, support uh, from the world stage. Use that term as uh, <clears throat> being consistent with the protocol moving our struggle outside the domestic confines of the United States, is what he said. Uh, one of the things that he learned when he started traveling ab abroad as a, uh, a needed uh, strategic method in receiving not only material support but advice from 
whoever identified us, identified with us in terms of a common plight, binding predicament. Uh, of course, you know, he also alerted us to the fact that the European was not the yardstick mm -hmm. that we should measure ourselves by. But, you know, sadly, in 6260 or 2020, you know, uh, the European is still regarded by many of us, you know, as the apotheosis of intelligence, wellness, uh, and, you know, so many of our people are looking to them for validation. Right, and we're still trapped in their, in their paradigm. Yeah, yeah. Where we live within their laws, their rules, and ultimately we view our success or we view success in life through their scope. Yeah. Through their lens. Yeah. And I, I think with that, um, we try to, you know, say that we have to get to a certain level where we can see eye to eye with the European, almost like this fight for equality. We're still fighting for equality instead of fighting for power. Yeah, you know, and, and equality within the context of uh, what Amos Wilson taught us was that it ultimately means being equal to the European that you will participate with the European in the destruction of African people aspirations. Right. As well as the conditions. You know, if you have internalized what equality means uh, within the context of the European definition, well, then you are also out of your mind. And now the human conversation or the human argument is used by people who want any type of rights, people who want uh, transgender rights. They'll say, oh, we're, we're human. These, these are human rights. Whenever they go to the African continent and they want to try to decriminalize homosexuality, the statement that they'll use is we're fighting for human rights. We're fighting for the rights that human beings should have. And I think that as African people, it's time for us to really step out of the European construct construct even the world construct mm -hmm. it's going to it's going to have to be a movement where african people have an african centered lens and we project ourselves as africans first and then everything else all the, all the other dominoes fall after that mm -hmm. we don't try to you know fit in with the with the rest of the crowd right we have to be leaders within our own culture and then upon doing that we can work with other people and we can you know operate with within you know the world economy but we have to project our own culture and have our own power and that's what uh McCarroll, uh always alludes to uh, that freedom where we become free proud and productive people you know, and operate on the basis of our own terms and own interests, but what is lacking, once again, is the power to do so. Yeah, and, you know, and that's why, you know, in the 19, 1960s, you know, there was a lot of discussion about the need for a cultural revolution, right? And, uh, you know, we, we know we know that, you know, that, that idea came under attack, you know, from within and without, uh, but there were also people on the African continent, for example, like Ahmed Sekoure, Amakar Cabral, that were also calling for a cultural revolution in Africa. We need a global African cultural revolution, you know, to to return ourselves to an Afri to our African-centered personalities that did, in fact, allow us to once walk the earth as free, proud, productive, prosperous, and powerful people. Uh, you know, as Dr. Karinga said, until you break the monopoly that the oppressors have on our minds, our liberation from the tyranny of white supremacy is not only unachievable, it's unthinkable. And, you know, too many of us right now, I mean, we are just, uh, we're, we're totally uh, captured uh, in, 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 the, in the European mode of thinking, mm -hmm. right? Total, total, you know, our total orientation. I mean, a lot of this obviously operates 
you know, through their institutions, uh, you know, religious and educational institutions and otherwise. But, you know, we have to uh, we have to find way. I mean, this has to be a priority item in, in, in you know, as far as far as I'm concerned. I mean, uh, the, the whole idea of culture, uh, you know, you know, I said that there were like five critical areas of power, education, economics, culture, communications and politics. The, in, the almost the entire black world over the past 50 to 60 years have been has been preoccupied with just one area of power, politics. Holding office without holding power. Mm-hmm. Right? And I mean this is what we see in Africa with neocolonialism. This was what the Kennedys hoped when they were pressuring Martin Luther King to end his uh direct action campaign, his mass base uh positive action. They wanted they wanted black people to focus their attention on electing officials. And we have to we have to seriously ask ourselves where is the return on that investment? Where is the return? Because if you if you travel through the deep south, what you will see in places like Lowndes County, Alabama, Selma County, Alabama, uh, LaFleur County, Mississippi, Tallahatchie County, Mississippi, what you will see is the people who invested the most in this movement for rights benefited the least. The political process alone has not worked. It simply, it plain and simply has not worked. Holding office is not synonymous with holding power. And and, and the way the American oligarchy works is you vote for whoever. And then we'll we'll buy them off and they'll represent our interest. And 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 and, and that's what we see taking place. Uh, you know, and in Africa what we have is overwhelmingly all of the presidents are neocolonial puppets of North Atlantic imperialism. So this becomes a critical necessity to gauge engage in in this uh, type of struggle. You know <laughs> to your point, brother, I saw an interesting statistic just yesterday, Michael Bloomberg has the ability to buy over a million black people at the pay rate of $56,000 a year and still retain his billionaire status. Right. You know, I know there's a local politician here in Charlotte. We know that Charlotte's mayor, Viola Lyles, uh, as one of several black males and former black males like David Dinkins of New York City have endorsed uh, Michael Bloomberg. Former Black Panther Bobby Rush endorsed uh, Michael Bloomberg. So, I mean, you know, this this is what we see taking place. But uh, this one brother that serves as the as the North Carolina uh, field coordinator for the Bloomberg campaign, uh, Bloomberg is paying him seven to eight hundred dollars a month. So this brother uh, took a leave of absence from his regular job hmm. to work full time for Bloomberg because at seven seven eight hundred dollars a month, you know he could see a very quick windfall from uh, from the um, from the amount of money that uh, that that Bloomberg is paying out, particularly if he stays in if he stays in the campaign. But there are just a, a couple other things. You know, we we talked in depth about the uh, election last week, but there are a couple of election-related issues that, uh, that, that popped up. Uh, one of them had to do with uh, the literacy rate in Cuba, which was praised by one of the candidates, uh, Bernie Sanders. And to me, this is a remarkable story of what can happen when you have a government that puts the interests of the masses of people first. Okay, now we know that there were a lot of... Uh, Bourgeois Cubans or Cubans who had benefited from uh, the Batista regime and the influence of uh, the, Cosa, the Cosa Nostra, the, the Maya Lanskis, and all of those guys uh, who who uh, obviously uh, upset that uh, the, the Castro brothers uh, and, their, and, and the July 26th movement had uh, succeeded. But let me just read this about the Cuban literacy rate because I think this is a remarkable story. When Fidel Castro's 26th of July movement overthrew the U.S.-backed dictator 
uh, uh, Batista on January 1st, 1959, the new revolutionary government inherited a country where the literacy rate was as low as 60%. Some people say it was even lower. The Batista regime had promoted a model of education uh, for profit, a for-profit model of education, encouraging the privatization of schools, colleges, and universities. In 1961, the, the revolutionary government of Cuba nationalized all educational institutions, ensuring that every child had a human right to a free quality education. Uh, so by the, end of, by the end of 1961, uh, dubbed the year of education, the, 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 the nation's literacy rate had risen to 96%. And uh, one of the one of the highest in the world, and this was the result of thousands of uh, uh, Dr. Castro rules formed what was called literacy brigades, where people went out into rural areas and taught not only children but adults to read to read and write. And uh, it said uh, this was the result of literacy brigades traveling across the country to rural areas, laying the foundation for what become the most democratic education system in the Americas, according to Telly Sir. And uh, CNN even went down there and interviewed two of the brothers. These two brothers were, were interviewed by CNN. They were part of, uh, of, uh, of the literacy brigades that uh, raised the education levels of, uh, of people in, uh, in, in Cuba. So, you know, that's a remarkable story. However, they want to play it out in American politics, uh, quite frankly, is irrelevant to me, but it's a great story. Another issue that's raising, that, that, that's, that's suddenly in, into uh, the forefront is the whole issue of socialism. There's a lot of talk about socialism. So I went back to uh, the one, one of the most brilliant minds we produced and posted this, uh, which I, under the caption, socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. Doctor. Yes. Whenever the government provides opportunities and privileges for white people and rich people, they call it subsidized. When they do it for the Negro and poor people, they call it welfare. The fact that the fact is that everybody in this country lives on welfare. Suburbia was built on federal uh, built with federally subsidized credit. And the highways to take our white brothers to the suburbs were built with federally subsidized money to the tune of 90%. Everybody's on welfare in this country. The problem is that all too often we have socialism for the rich and rugged free enterprise capitalism for the poor. That's the problem. Uh, so, you know, this was Dr. King speaking. Uh, people might want to disagree with his concept of the white brothers there. But, uh, but, you know, that's that's an example of, of, of what we see taking place. And I mean, if you look at, for example, at the uh, at the military industrial complex. You know, it's totally funded by U.S. taxpayers. And these people are making billions of dollars, you know, Boeing, Lockheed, uh, Martin and uh, General Dynamics, uh, Raytheon, Raytheon and all the others. This is African Liberation Media, B.B. Fahodier. If you want to talk about free stuff, you got to look at microchip, the internet, and GPS. And I didn't get a return on my tax investment of B.B. Fahodier. <laughs> power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not jobs, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. You are buying your houses and fine clothes, does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. 
The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.